0: I've got a choice. Stay at home with my mum, my boyfriend, my job, or chuck it all in for danger and monsters and life or death. What do you think?
1: This is Trap One. My name is Mark McManus. This week, I'll be talking about Russell T. Davies's novelisation of Rose with my co-host Ruth Long, showrunner of The Untold Adventures. Welcome back, Ruth.
0: Hello. Uh, it's great to be here again. Look at another great book.
1: Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? So, before we get into the book, are there any news about The Untold Adventures since we last spoke?
0: Well, lately we haven't been as active on our social media accounts, mainly because it's just been really, really busy behind the scenes. We've been working away on drafts, you know, finalising outlines. Um, we've recently assembled an artist team, and there's some incredibly talented artists that have come on board, and um, we're currently sorting things out on that front. Um, but hopefully, towards sort of the end of the month, July time, we're going to start be going to start revealing more information and. Um, sort of slowly building things up and giving you a little bit more um, of an idea of what we're planning in terms of the, you know, characterisation and the episode titles. So, uh, yeah, it's really coming together as a proper series, which is very exciting.
1: Brilliant. I'm really looking forward to that. I will um, put links uh, to the website in the show notes Mm -hmm. as well. So, as I said, we're going to be talking about the book version of Rose today, I started watching Doctor Who not long before it was cancelled back in the 80s. So for me, Mm -hmm. the Target books were a a great way, um, well, the only way really to experience the older stories at first, Mm -hmm. um, before I had access to the television versions. As somebody who came to Doctor Who with the new series, have you gone back and looked at the old Target novels, anything like that?
0: I haven't actually. I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't actually know that novelisations were a thing until these um, newer ones were announced, um, but definitely I'd like to go back and see, um, I think especially as I, because I intend to go back and revisit several eras that I've only sort of seen some stories for, like I've only seen a few of the Baker stories, and um, so I'd love to go back and, you know, really experience those, and the novelizations as a part of that.
1: Brilliant, this, uh, actually just before we just started recording, we were talking about the Seventh Doctor era, the novelizations of those stories are, are brilliant. Like Ben Aronovich's um, *Remembrance of the Daleks* mm-hmm. is excellent. It really adds a lot to the story. Um, same with *Battlefield*, which I think Mark Platt adapted from Ben Aronovich's script.
2: Mm-hmm. Just
1: add loads, uh, like these um, these modern ones do. They they add loads of depth to it. Um, but they're all yeah. incredibly readable. All the old Target books, and you can read them in one sitting, which is uh, which is nice as well.
0: Yeah, that's the best thing. That even I, I suppose it varies depending on the length of the story and how much the author wants to sort of add but they're really readable books generally and they're quite compact so it's like I, I read a lot of these in just one sitting which is really nice.
1: Yeah definitely and the old ones are the same so uh, Terence mm-hmm. Dix wrote a massive amount of them, he's like kind of the lion's share um, yeah. and his prose is, is just excellent, it just really kind of uh, rockets along and uh, yeah, superb writer.
0: Yeah, I think it, uh, what I really like about the novelizations, especially being familiar with the um, the writers in terms of their screenplays, like Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davies, um, seeing how they translate into prose is really interesting because they've got quite different styles.
3: Yeah. Um,
0: but you kind of see the flair for their screenwriting in their prose. Um, so, as we'll get into, like. Uh, with the Rose one, it's, you've got this very distinct Rossity Davies style coming through and Stephen Moffat's is obviously like, the chapters are all over the place and there's so much wit and inside jokes and (laughs) it's very him, definitely, but I don't want to spoil that book too much.
1: Yeah, I love that one, I'll be talking about that one in in a few weeks, Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, looking forward to that. Um, But yeah, so Rose, um, written by, um, new up-and-coming writer called Russell T. Davies. So, yeah, I think he's got a a good future ahead of him.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. A lot of promise.
1: (laughs) So what were your memories of the TV episode of Rose?
0: Well, oddly enough, and this is, I I have to admit this um, to my shame, but I didn't actually see Rose until, uh, it must have been 2013, 2014, because I started watching back with, um... I think it was Tenant's first series. So it was around like New Earth, uh, Tooth and Claw time. And I was about, I was quite young back then. Um, So I I watched, but I I was never like a kind of super fan around then. I was kind of just watching it as it aired. Um, And then I became like a, I really got into the show again in 2013, around the sort of 50th anniversary time, mm-hmm. and um, and then that's when I decided to go back and revisit, you know, right from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I, it, so I, I don't quite have the same nostalgia as a lot of people do with Rose, but I still kind of feel that connection because I, I remember when it first came back and I remember hearing people talking about the shop window dummies and the new doctor and it was kind of sort of playing around in the background um at the time but yeah I think it's a fantastic episode (laughs) which is a fitting um adjective but um yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, it's obviously quite a simple plot really, but it does everything it needs to, and it does it really well. I mean, it, it's got, you know, it's quite dated in terms of the CGI, which Russell himself makes a joke about in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really excellent, kind of perfect introduction, reintroduction to the show and to the Doctor. And, um, you know, since watching series one, Chris Braxton has definitely become one of my favourites.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, like you said about the nostalgia for it, I think kind of what it represents is is as important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the day it went out, I remember um, I was at work and it was just the longest day um, <laughs> because I was so excited to, yeah. uh, to get home that Saturday night to watch it and even more excited than I was in 1996 with the TV mm-hmm. movie because this time you know, I knew it was going to be a series. It wasn't just... Oh, we're going to watch this, and then there might be a series. This was episode one of thirteen. There's going to be a whole run. Um, so yeah, it just I remember that day just seemed absolutely <laughs> interminable. Um, and then it, it really—I mean, I, I do like the TV movie, but I think really learns the lessons of that in terms of how to introduce the Doctor and the TARDIS and the different elements. Um, it really, uh, really does it perfectly. And bringing the Autons back—it's great for the for the old fans because it's nostalgic mm. for the early Pertwee stories. And they're not an alien that's really got a ton of backstory that you need, you know, like the Daleks and the Sidemen, where no. they came from. They, they never had more than this, really. They they are plastic controlled by the Nestine consciousness. That's all you need, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think especially bringing them back for this particular kind of story, because, you know, it's called Rose. It's very much orientated around the companion and her perspective. And I think having having a monster that kind of is something so mundane um, as a shop window dummy, which, you know, it creeps a lot of people out, mannequins, anyway. So, um, you know, you bring back a monster that fits so well with the themes of the story um, in terms of it being, you know, the Doctor and the alien kind of invading and sort of transforming the normal world. It's, it's a perfect choice, really.
1: Yeah, I think that's what Doctor Who, it kind of sets it apart from other science fiction is that um, it's the fusion isn't it of the everyday and the fantastic mm-hmm. often, uh, yeah it's um, they, they really got it Russ Davis really got it you know kind of the formula right back to the basics uh, from the start with this
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so um, if we get into the book the um, the kind of the opening is um, with uh, the backstory for Wilson who is uh, only really kind of name checked in the episode because you've got the Rose goes to the basement yep trying to give him the lottery money whereas here we get this whole um, kind of sordid story don't we of, uh, yeah. uh, where he's, uh, he's in charge of the lottery syndicate but he's been siphoning money off it
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then um, yeah one of the syndicates actually wins but he hasn't put the ticket on he's kept the money for himself <laughs> uh, so he comes up with a plan to, to burn Hendrix down I love the line it says like any British employee he'd spent many hours working, working out how to raise his workplace
0: to the ground Yeah, there's there's so many good lines like that in there. Um, And um, yeah, I I think it just, like right from the off, you can see that he's taking real advantage of the format and the medium he's using, because you see it a lot throughout this book. He expands on the backstory of even the most minor characters, um, just sort of really helping. I suppose it's a great sort of tone setter. And I I love the last line sort of saying, and Bernie realised he was one of those moments where you realise you're part of a bigger story Um, so it was a really nice way to kind of set up and get you kind of you've got the sort of wit and the humour and the sort of mundane but it's a really good introduction I think and I mean you can can tell it's designed for someone who's already seen the TV episode Yeah. Um, but at the same time it does work really well to get you into the sort of the tone of it really
1: yeah I think um, making more of the the lottery part of it as well Um, Mm -hmm. You've got Rose kind of the feeling that she's just waiting for something to come along to, you know, kind of realize her potential and make her special. And that's kind of all the people playing the lottery every day in in Hendrix are the same thing. They're just waiting for the numbers to come up and then Mm -hmm. win the lottery. So it felt like it was a good analogy for where Rose is as well.
0: Oh, absolutely, um, yeah, because she even references it in her in like internal monologue. Someone's like cheering about winning the lottery in the distance, and she's like, everything interesting is happening far away. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's really good.
1: The other really nice in-joke that I like when Rose goes to the basement is when she says she hears an Irish comedian's voice on the radio.
0: Yeah, that's a, is that a Graham Norton reference, isn't it?
1: Yeah, when the episode was first broadcast, um, they accidentally broadcast some sound from... A TV show that I think he was going to do either on BBC Two or, or afterwards or something like that. Um, so it went out over that scene, which kind of dispelled <laughs> some of the tension a little bit. When um, you know she's uh, she's creeping along uh, and, they, and they're surrounded by the dummies. Uh, so yeah, it's nice that he um, he made that part of the story here. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of re- sort of self-referential humour in
1: here. Uh, yeah, because um, Graham Norton was he uh, became kind of notorious because uh, in the in Matt Smith's first series. The, um, the cliffhanger to the, um, the, the two-parter with the Weeping Angels, it's uh, Flesh and Stone and whatever the first part of that is.
0: Time of Angels, I think it is. Time,
1: yeah, Time of Angels. There's uh, there's a the really good cliffhanger there.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and again, just as it's looking really bad for the Doctor and everybody, this little <coughs> cartoon of Graham Norton um, comes across the bottom of the screen. It's a trailer for like some talent show that he was going to be on afterwards. <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm so annoyed! I've missed all of this. <laughs>
1: yeah. So So um, he was, um, yeah, he was just just kind of got this reputation for for constantly <laughs> intruding on uh, on uh, kind of key scenes in Doctor Who. Yeah. You
2: know?
1: Um. So uh, the what happens then is um, the Autons. Well, the Autons kill um, Wilson first of all, don't they? And mm-hmm. then um, Rose goes looking for him and. It kind of plays out as, as we see in the episode with the doctor saving her and running away. Um, but the, the book having the bigger budget, the Hendrix is like completely destroyed in, in the explosion when the doctor plants the bomb on the roof, isn't it? There's, it's described mm-hmm. as being rubble everywhere. Um, whereas in the TV show, kind of the roof explodes and the windows blow out, don't
0: they? Yes, yeah, so this is kind of sort of, you can tell very clearly that it's in a it's an fate and it's done on the computer. But yeah, here it's like, it's like a bombing scene, it's like something out of the Blitz. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But you can, something I really like, sort of coming back to this, this uh, second chapter, when you sort of first see Rose, is is kind of having that interiority for her character. It's really nice to sort of, I mean, they convey it very well in the episode just through that montage at the beginning, kind of waking up in the morning, doing her work, and it's kind of very monotonous. But it's really nice to sort of get the chance, having seen it purely on screen, to get the sort of inner thoughts of a character. Hmm. Um, I I always find that really interesting, because it must be quite hard deciding how much you put in there without it being too on the nose.
1: Yeah. Um, I thought the, the really interesting bit early on is where after her first encounter with the doctor, she's quite hard on herself. Um, she thinks that she didn't really kind of acquit herself as well as she thought she would. She thought, oh, in a crisis, I always thought I'd be really impressive. Um, but she hadn't been, and she just kind of gone along with it. Um, so that was interesting. And it kind of makes, as, as the story goes on, it's it's her wanting to be better than that that marks her out as companion material in a way.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's kind of setting up this character arc within um the book which is evident in the in on screen but um it's a lot more prominent obviously here um so it's interesting seeing how he incorporates that um into you you sort of see her feelings evolve as she goes along
1: yeah and she's um she there's also a bit she remembers um that She's uh, At New Year's Eve, she'd met somebody which was obviously the 10th mm-hmm. doctor in the end of time. And she says, oh, they told me, you know, this guy said that I was going to have a really good year kind of thing. Um, so it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? She's kind of on the lookout for something that's going to make her have a really good year. Um, because the doctors, you know, travel back in time and told her she's going to have a, a really good, It's almost like a bootstrap. Mm-hmm. um
0: paradox isn't it yeah that's and that's sort of on a more meta level it's interesting kind of seeing uh, like I'm, I'm glad these novelizations are written you know it's quite a long time after the episodes air. Well, apart from Twice Upon a Time, obviously. Mm. Um, but it's nice because they have that added context, and and Russell can go go back and incorporate these other things. Like he he references some Stephen Moffat era things. He even references stuff post Stephen Moffat as well. Um, yeah. So it's really fun getting to see how knowing the future sort of informs how he goes back and writes this, and how he expands on some certain things with the sort of added context of the other series um, yeah it, 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 it just makes it a lot more rewarding I think sort of having that bigger picture
1: yeah definitely so I think um, another big change is uh, Mickey, sort of Mickey's life and backstory in the book because um, he gets the, a group of friends in, uh, in the book which, you do, which we don't get to see in the TV episode um, who are members, members of his band
0: um, yeah, I, I I can't remember, which is weird considering I watched Series Two like a week ago. But um, I can't remember how much of the because they definitely had his gran, um, and obviously he was at um, he was in Father's Day as a little boy. But I think what Russell did was really kind of stitch all of those bits together into a really kind of, a really quite tragic backstory. Um, But I think it it really does deepen Mickey's character a lot and kind of helps inform even more his arc across the series. Um, And it's really nice kind of enhancing this feeling of kind of sort of either, even how he's very happy just in spite of all that he's been And Rose almost resents him for having a more interesting life than her in a way um, because he had, a, I think his, his mum committed suicide and his dad left him. Um, so it was just him and his gran um, and obviously she passed away as well. So mm-hmm. um, it's almost like Rose just mm-hmm. kind of, and, and I, I quite like how the fact how it doesn't avoid Rose's flaws as a character, but it doesn't make her unsympathetic. It's more the fact that, you know, she kind of has these dark thoughts that all of us have sometimes. Like, um, there's this kind of selfishness to her character sometimes. And a lot of people go off her character because of that in sort of series two. And um, But I think it's one of the things that makes her such an interesting character. Like, she's not... Um, She's not flat or anything. She has very real flaws, and the show does explore them. Um, And um, I I really like how they do that through her relationship with Mickey here and showing that even though she loves him a lot and she does appreciate him a lot, she's maybe not quite satisfied as she is. Um, So, yeah, it's it's really interesting seeing that gone into deeper into this one story.
1: Yeah, completely, because you don't hear about any of her friends, really, do you? um she's like mickey's got these really close friends who come around to his flat all the time and they're in a band together and they all hang out but rose doesn't seem to have any friends that she hangs out around with independently of that uh, and like you say she's she's kind of a bit jealous of that and his his um uh, his friendship group
0: yeah um yeah because you only get these odds kind of my mate Shireen sort of things. And it's like that in the show as well, but they do it in the book. Um, So you don't really get the sense. She almost, yes, her life kind of is more involved with Mickey's maybe. And she hasn't, obviously I'm speculating here, but based on the book, it kind of seems like she hasn't got much to her life beyond, you know, those that she shares with her mum and Mickey. Um, And kind of sort of going on a tangent on Mickey's friends, I really love um, how Russell kind of fleshes out these characters they're completely new characters but they're given really kind of interesting backstories and they're a diverse group and it's really nice seeing these other characters get fleshed out and as a result it helps kind of inform Mickey and Rose's characters more which is really clever
1: I think yeah the um the way that Mickey's like you say given he's made much more sympathetic I think in the book it makes me feel worse for him the way that the doctor and Rose treat him. Like you say, Rose, um, isn't, isn't she, one of the sides of her character, which isn't that pleasant is when it goes into mm-hmm. the story about how she left him for a year to go with a guy called Jimmy Stone. Um, it said when she was 16, she kind of ran off with this guy and left sixth form. And then, um, she, uh, later on when they're in the, the pizza place, she and, and Mickey's acting oddly because she hasn't realised he's been replaced yeah. by an autumn, but she, she mentions this Jimmy Stone and she says that, that always winds him up and you think like that's she obviously does that quite often uh, yeah. and it's obviously very hurtful like oh yeah I'll, meet, I'll mention the guy that I left you for uh, which yeah I thought was a real kind of quite sharp thing oh definitely yeah, but
0: that, I, I, I think that makes like in hindsight it makes a lot because it almost sets up how quickly she drops Mickey for the doctor sort yeah. of saying, Oh, she did this before, obviously not with a very nice guy, but how she sort of, you know, left him for someone else. And you kind of get the impression that she's never quite satisfied with Mickey. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not like she resents him or anything. Well, maybe she does on a deep level, but um, because there's this lovely kind of sense where she does see him bonding with all of his, um his friends and seeing, you know, what a lovely guy he is. Hmm. Um, and then you go a little bit into Mickey's perspective later and he's sort of thinking about how lucky he is to have Rose, which kind of makes you feel even worse for him, yeah. um, knowing everything that happens later. But it's, it's a nice way of setting up, sort of through the character's perspectives and flaws, the sort of knowledge that it's not going to work out and that Rose is obviously going to find the Doctor to be more of the person she wants to be with, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it sets up um, the idea that you know there's a precedent for her running off with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But also from Mickey's point of view, it talks about how he didn't really do anything. He didn't sort of chase after her or um, Mm -hmm. you know kind of go after this Jimmy Stone or anything like that. Um, And it says in the in the book, he did just the right thing. He just waited, and she came back to him, which sort of sets up why Mickey is always there for her. Um, even though she's ran off with the doctor, and she she's not that interested in him really. When they come home, mm-hmm. he thinks he thinks from his experience he'll just wait long enough, and she'll she'll eventually yeah. come back to him as well. Um, yeah, and
0: again. um It's kind of pulling all of the added context of what happens later. So there's things like um, him saying, oh, he he could have easily sort of gotten gotten with Trisha Delaney, which obviously happens in Boomtown later (laughs) in the series. Um, So it's a kind of really clever way of setting everything up and pulling it all together and kind of really sort of deepening how the character arcs are set up for the rest of the series.
1: Yeah. What's weird is I thought that the the Jimmy Stone thing was entirely the creation of the book. When I watched Rose again the other day, she does actually mention him um, again when they go for dinner after they've been to Clive's house.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, when they're eating dinner, she says, um, I've got it here, she says, it's all Jimmy Stone's fault. I only left school because of him. And look where he ended up.
0: Oh, that's um, really clever.
1: Yeah, and I just think it's weird that, like I've never remembered that in the episode. And it's, mm-hmm. because it's such a, such a key episode as well, it's been poured over. Um, it's not something you see people mention. That, no. Like, who's Jimmy Stone and what was the backstory there? But um, yeah, it's great the way Rusty Davis has, has pulled that out mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of created this um, this story around it. Um, yeah, definitely. Just same with the with the Mickey thing as well. I think it's interesting the um, in the book they changed the very last line in the TV show she say when she just when she runs off with the doctor she says Mm -hmm. thank you and Mickey goes what for and she goes exactly and then runs into Taddy she doesn't do it in the book Um, and I think it is it is crueler given the um, the, you know the more that you know about Mickey in this one Mm. um, and the relationship and how he's devoted to her Uh, so yeah I thought that was because it was it it was kind of really unpleasant of her I think in the in the TV show
0: oh yeah yeah definitely um, um, but in the book there shows,
1: is, thank you yeah
0: yeah there is kind of a line between making a, kind of knowing where a character's coming from and seeing their flaws and making it like okay that was you know way too harsh and yeah you're right with the added context of Mickey's backstory and his perspective in this story I think it would have made that last kind of ending the book on that would have been a bit kind of off I think yeah
1: um so uh, the other character that gets a lot more uh, backstory and a lot more detail about is, is Clive.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they they have loads actually. Because um, they, they really. Um, so I'm just having a look at my notes quickly. Um, they really deepen his motivation, don't they? Like, they give him a, a sort of real. a past that helps inform why he's become so devoted to finding out about the doctor. Because. Um, if I, yeah, didn't his, um, his dad um, die in one of the Hartnell episodes, um, or think, at least it's applied? I
1: think it's supposed to be Remembrance of the Daleks, the, the, the McCoy story, yeah, because it talks about um, in the 60s, I think. Um, oh, yeah, yeah it's
0: 1963.
1: It, yeah, which, uh, yeah, which is when Remembrance of the Daleks is set. So, again, and it talks about it being um, in London. It might even say Shoreditch, I can't remember. Um, so oh, I it says
0: it, it was Totter's Lane, so yeah, it, it must have been Remembrance. Yeah,
1: yeah, so he's, he's one of the soldiers that get, gets killed by Remembrance. Maybe even the one, I love that scene right at the start of Remembrance, or near the start where there's something in the shed, and then you just see the point of view from the Dalek, and it's got all the alien writing and the targeting stuff, and then the bolt just flies out and the, the soldier goes flying.
2: Oh, yeah, that's really clever.
1: That's who I imagined it was, just because that's such a memorable uh, mm. kind of reintroduction for the Daleks at that point in the series so yeah my my headcanon is that guy that gets um that gets flung against the um like some corrugated iron or something yeah in that, in that episode yeah
0: I mean. headcanon accepted
1: yeah <laughs> um, so yeah that's um it, it gives him this uh this kind of motivation like you say to to find out more about the doctor and about unexplained phenomena because it's it, he's never satisfied with the explanation of why his, his father died it makes him a bit more like Elton, I suppose, as well in, in *Love and Monsters*, doesn't
0: it? It does a bit, yeah. Um, only I think in some ways, you know, he's a lot more informed, maybe than Elton was. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I really like how much they expand upon that particular chapter because it's quite exposition-heavy. Mm. But um, you know, you really see Russell having a lot of fun, like uh, when Rose is looking through the like pictures of the Doctor, mm. and she's like, "Oh, they look like." kind of b-movie <laughs> badly made effects and stuff and it's yeah. kind of an in joke on the classic effects and um and even like little details one one which made me laugh was um i always thought how um you know the kennedy assassination picture it looks so badly like photoshopped or cut out in
2: yeah
0: um, and rose actually says that in the in the book and you're like it's just it's just a fun way of playing with the um with the sort of added context of the episode like it's quite self-aware
1: yeah it is really poor photoshopping isn't it I when I listened mm-hmm. to the um, director's commentary on Rose um, after I watched the episode the other day and it's got Russell T Davis, Phil Collinson and Julie Gardner on it um, and he talk about how bad the photoshopping was <laughs> on the Kennedy assassination picture they, said yeah. that was about, they kept sending it back and that was about the tenth one and it was the best one so you must have the others must have been <laughs> truly dreadful Um, And it was Russell T. Davis that came up with the idea of drawing a red circle round his face
2: Mm. to
1: try and separate it from the rest of the picture. Yeah. Um, The other funny detail in that was that um, Julie Garner didn't like that scene um, because she thought, when she first watched it, she thought they were implying that um, the ninth doctor assassinated JFK. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I didn't get that when I watched it, yeah. Um, yeah, and then so there's the uh, like you say they, they talk about the, the the classic kind of era monsters that they, they look like glove puppets and things. Mm-hmm. Which I think is reference to the 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 Scaris and the Loch Ness monster from *Terror of the Zygons*. I think is one mm-hmm. of them. Um, And then she she sees pictures of various other the Doctors. Um, which one of the funny things is she sort of looks away when um, he pulls out a picture of the tenth Doctor, so she doesn't actually see it.
0: Yeah, she's too busy looking at like a the doctor wrestling with a pterodactyl or something. Yeah. Um so she sort of glosses over while he's talking about, you know, the next incarnation, which I thought was a clever way of just dodging, you know, a plot hole of her having already seen the doctor, um, well the tenth doctor.
1: Yeah. Um but then I thought she does she does see a picture of one of the um Imperial Daleks from Remembrance as well, but then it doesn't kind of uh but I think she she's so dismissive of it all, she probably doesn't remember it by the time you get to the episode Like I guess is the uh, um, is the interpretation there.
0: Yeah, I suppose, and I suppose, like, if you want to stretch it, the design is different enough for her maybe to have not put her and two together if she was kind of distracted at the time. Yeah. Or at least she can excuse it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <coughs> there's a really great bit as well um, so you have like a, sort of the 11th Doctor mentioned with his chin obviously um, and then you have you know, Capaldi's Doctor the grumpy man in a caretaker's coat and then it um, even mentions 13 which is fun I hope they incorporate the uh, running away from a frog in front of um, Buckingham Palace story into yeah. the show <laughs> um,
1: and we get some future Doctors as well
0: we do, I, I love this I, I kind of secretly hope that the next, you know, the next people they cast kind of fit this sort of image because I, I love the image of um of a a bald black woman wielding a flaming sword like yeah. that. That sounds so badass. Um and obviously uh and, and it's really nice because you you see Russell kind of uh sort of expanding the mythos of the Doctor through that like um mm-hmm. like originally in the script it's sort of very kind of father to son inherited title whereas yeah. if you you see that he's changed it more to like oh it's a um it's like a code name for someone working for like the government um or it's like a, a like a, a specialist title um so it kind of opens you know expands since jody's casting it expands like who the doctor can be more which is really nice
1: yeah and anything like that where like hints of, of possible futures is is really cool like mm-hmm. in, in battlefield the idea that there's a future incarnation of the doctor's merlin and that kind of thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: stuff like that is uh, it's quite exciting Definitely. yeah and there's a little um little dig at stephen moffat as well when they yeah. they say about um clive says one of the theories is that there's a crack in time leeching away memories but they both agree it sounds a bit fanciful
0: yeah, I, I think, um, and I think Stephen does that with Bad Wolf in the Day novelisation. If I remember correctly, I can't remember the specific context, but yeah. they talk about how that was confusing or something in that story.
1: Yeah, there's an, another thing which I think is um, is a little kind of repost um, uh, in Day of the Doctor to something that Russell T. Davis said about that episode when Frank Skinner interviewed him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll, I'll go into that one on the day of the doctor podcast. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's nice that there's those little sort of uh, little uh, kind of uh, affectionate um, things at each other. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and one thing that happens just before this chapter with Clive is uh, the Mickey Bin chapter, and yes. I love how he wrote. The animation was perfect. Like yes. that's an obvious like jab at the the CGI of the bin swallowing yes. Mickey up.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And then um, they uh, so after, after Clive, they go to the the pizza restaurant, um, and the uh, I guess they, I mean they couldn't have got away with this in the episode. Um, mm-hmm. Although I, I read the um, the entry in the you know the complete history series of books
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: that this was in the original draft that oh. um, the Auton Mickey's eyeball falls out into his soup or something. <laughs> um, I read in the book first, and I thought, yeah, they couldn't have put that in the TV episode. That would have been way too kind of gory um but yeah apparently it was something he'd originally planned to put in
0: i mean i suppose he does the doctor does rip his head off shortly afterwards so yeah it depends where you draw the line but um i, I another detail sort of with plastic mickey is the fact that like like rose does kind of register this time that there's something off like she's like oh he looks too perfect it's Like there's mm. his hair looks like there's a it's just a block, and he's, he's got this like weird sheen to him because it's obviously played for laughs in the episode, but it's so obviously not him. Yeah. In the episode, but um, and obviously she's very distracted, but it's 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 again kind of incorporating that um sort of meta humor into the, the story really.
1: Yeah, she just kind of thinks he's doing a, a, a stupid voice and stuff, mm-hmm. rather than she, which he which he does quite often. Um, as described, oh, yeah. The other thing about um Clive, um, I know I'd missed, they make much more about the danger of going to meet somebody off the internet,
0: yes, yeah. Um, because in the episode itself on the the TV episode, they do kind of make a joke about oh, he's he's going to be some like creepy murderer or something, yeah. Um, but. They definitely, um, because she's emailing him from Mickey's account, um, and they kind of uh, emphasise the fact that he kind of proves his trustworthiness several times. um, And, uh, yeah, I I think that it's nice that he incorporates little things like that.
1: Yeah, because even when she's in the shed, she's still sort of at any point. He offers her a drink, and it's like, if it's alcohol, I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Um, Because I guess, I mean... Like, I mean, for me, 2005 doesn't seem like any time ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But stuff like that kind of does date it. The fact that Rose has to go to um, Mickey's flat to go on the Internet, um, it's now like everyone's got a smartphone in their pocket. You know, if she wanted to Google the doctor, in you know, 2018, she would not mm. need to go to somebody's flat to go on the internet. You would just kind of pull out your phone, wouldn't you? And, uh, yeah, she'd probably
0: just Skype him as well. Like She wouldn't yeah. need to go to his house.
1: But, uh, um, it's a, although it seems like not so long ago, um, that that kind of thing, It just I kind of, think, yeah, God, yeah, we have, like, technology has progressed significantly. And the absolutely. dangers of the internet and that kind of thing and meeting people off the internet is probably better known now as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean... Also, yeah, because the whole of Series 1 really especially stands out to me. It's, it's very much 2005. Like, when you watch it, you're taken back to that year. Um, even though I didn't watch it live, it's, I still have that kind of nostalgia from the era, really. Yeah. Um, and, like, uh, yeah, just the little things like the, like the casting and the events they reference and the people they reference, it does really put you back in the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's it the charm, really.
1: I was thinking today, another thing that potentially will date it in the future is kind of Rose working in a department store. You know, thing, you know with um, kind of British Home Stores has gone under and it was yesterday, I think, house yeah. the House of Fraser's in trouble and they're closing loads of their branches. It feels like that kind of shop is probably on its way out and will be, become a thing of the past as well.
0: Yeah, and the the same goes, I suppose, with the whole lottery money um, yeah. thing, because a lot of that's done digitally now. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, you just do it on the on the website and stuff, don't
2: you?
0: Mm.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it kind of it kind of adds to the mythos of Doctor Who, seeing that evolve, because um, obviously, you know, when Series Eleven rolls around, the companion instruction stories, are, you know, might be completely different, taking to. The, the sort of time into account um if that makes sense yeah but, um, no, absolutely yeah because it's interesting seeing if you look at the companion introduction stories how they evolve because um you know rose is very much the department so it's very it feels very 2005 and then you get to say maybe clara's introduction story which is about the internet um and you maybe couldn't have that story you know back in 2005 um because that's all about, you know, how pervasive the internet and social media is. Um, and that was back in 2013. So, you know, there's another leap um, yeah. when you get to series eleven.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, the So the, the other change with Clive is the, the way that he dies in the story. Because I remember thinking in the episode, it is quite brutal. He's, he's basically shot point blank right in front of his wife <laughs> and kids. So that's um, yeah, kind of um, shifted a little bit in the story that he, he lets them escape while he stands to face the Autons.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, uh, are we getting to the climax now? Or? Um,
1: yeah, so I've gone, I've gone a bit kind of all over the place, haven't I? I've oh, just, yeah, that's kind of all gone right. down a thread um, of Clive.
0: Because, um, yeah, it's really clever. Oh, I mean, it's also, it adds to the kind of heartbreak of it. It adds to the sort of sadness of it because you see him sort of get really excited saying, oh, this is my chance. Everything I've worked for is real because aliens are real and that means the doctor's real. And so he sort of has this chance to sort of finally be an adventure. Um sort of be a hero almost like the doctor and yeah it's it's also written really brutally it's something Mm. like um like father like son and the back of his head was gone yeah (laughs) so um i suppose because of the format you can be a little bit more kind of uh gruesome with your descriptions
1: yeah yeah, it's quite, it is, like you say, it's, it's just brutal. It's just that that's the end of him then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's kind of, it, it looks like they're not going to escape as well, although he sacrificed mm-hmm. himself. There. They're then kind of surrounded. Um, but like you say, we've kind of, um, I've kind of followed Clive to the end of the book there, but um, it, story-wise, um, Rose and Mickey are at the restaurant when the doctor turns up again um, and... The uh, so Mickey's hands turn into the huge blades and start mm-hmm. kind of attacking and stuff like that. Um, which I guess in the TV episode was maybe the only scene they had the budget to do that for. Um, yeah. Whereas in the... The, in, in the in the um, TV episode, the Ottons have the old seventies, um, like the hinged palms that that kind mm-hmm. of come open and then and then use the old guns. Um, what they have in the book is much more of that plastic morphing into different weapons so some of them are guns but some of them are blades and all that kind of thing
0: I suppose that makes the um, like like the karate chop at the beginning it kind of seems like a bit of a naff like that wouldn't really do you much damage if you were hit with just a plastic arm so kind of showing how it turns into like a blade kind of makes you feel you know it heightens the stakes a bit
1: yeah that she did have a lucky escape yeah um, so I guess, I guess touches like that are what maybe you wanted to do in the TV episode, but um, kind of budget-wise or time-wise, you know, it wasn't, wasn't quite there.
0: I mean, it, it really makes you want more novelizations, really, knowing, like, that, that there are several episodes I can think of that I think would really be interesting to see a novelization of, especially by the original writer. Um, but I think Rose was such a good choice because of how much it sets up, Um, and introduces
1: yeah definitely they've gone before that they've they've brought out um a really all really key episodes aren't they they're sort of Mm -hmm. the first one of a new doctor or the last one or you know the kind of multi-doctor yep yeah oh i mean they seem to have been a huge success i think um definitely on my kind of timeline everybody's read them Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I know that's not exactly representative of like the whole uh, of publishing or anything, but um, <laughs> you'd imagine that they've, they've done well enough. Hopefully, we'll get you know, if we get four of these every year, I'll be um, oh, with yeah, with that. Same um, here. Um, and then, so the other, the, like, probably my favorite scene in Rose is Rose um, going inside the TARDIS for the first mm-hmm. time, um, and that's that's kind of really authentic. To the story, the only real difference is that uh, in the book, Mickey's head is still talking. Yeah. um, Whereas it doesn't in the TV episode, but uh, yeah, it's it's such a great, a great scene where she runs around the outside of it in the traditional way, and then runs. The first time she goes in, you don't see the rest of it from her point Mm of view. She runs back out again. Um, I tell you, it's a terrific scene. And again, I think they learned from the TV movie that that is the way to introduce the TARDIS Mm -hmm. interior. Um, whereas the TV movie just opens inside the TARDIS basically, yeah.
0: doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's really nice, like, seeing that classic scene um, with the added perspective. Like, um, you can just – I mean, Billy's acting pulls off what basically what this book says, but um, – seeing the kind of how she just can't comprehend it and it's just wrong to her. Um, so she has to keep, you know, double-checking. It's really nice seeing that in a prose perspective, really.
1: Yeah, you get a few scenes where she's with the Doctor early on and it, it, it's described like her senses are telling her to run away because it's mm. it's dangerous and it's alien and different, but she overcomes that. And against another way that kind of marks her out from... Other humans why mm. she becomes a companion, whereas um, you know, Mickey's less able to handle it all. Yeah. Um, although we you know eventually he does kind of, you know, kind of join as a companion for a while mm-hmm. and things like that. It takes him longer to get to grips with it. Um when he, you know, after his first trip in the TARDIS, he kind of runs out, doesn't he? And
2: uh, Yeah,
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's um so it's not it's I think like you say, the book is more sympathetic towards him. Um mm-hmm. and it's it is more that he just can't adapt in the way that Rose does.
0: Yeah, and I, I also think like he had a pretty different experience because I think if Rose yeah. got sucked up by the bin and then chained up for ages, yeah, might have been a different story. But yeah, it, it does kind of um, it does show you know her strength as a character, and they I think he does such a good job of showing that sort of push and pull within a conflict and um, seeing that evolve and then. Um, sort of when we talk about the climax more, I'll get into it, but sort of seeing that final decision she makes, which kind of proves her worth, and it's it's a really good scene, it's done really well yeah. um, in the book.
1: Um, and a bit less cheesy than the TV episode as well, she doesn't um, talk, she doesn't have that speech that she does in the TV episode where she says, oh, I haven't got any A-levels, I haven't got a job, but I've got my... Bronze gymnastic um, certificate or whatever. It's it's, it's it's better that it's internalized. I think in the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose with the with, with the format, they couldn't. He couldn't really have included that. I mean, it would have been even cheesier if it was like projected yeah. in a monologue going on. Um, yeah, and I I I think it's a really important point to drive through um, because like she hasn't got the most impressive. Uh, like backstory or credentials or anything, and that's part of the charm of her character. That like she's very grounded, yeah. and um, she maybe feels that she hasn't got you know done very much with her life, and she feels kind of it, she just feels really unsatisfied because of that. So it's a really nice using kind of that to assert that she's still proud of that, and um, that still makes her keen, you know she's still able to save the day because of that
1: yeah definitely um she's um it, it kind of drives home her background doesn't it she's she's very much like ace i think um mm-hmm. you come of all the kind of classic era companions um the, the kind of background and everything that she comes from is is closest to that i guess something I things like that like the um the thing about Clive's dad being from Remembrance of the Daleks, it's, mm-hmm. um, it shows those kind of links and influences. Yeah, so it shows where yeah. the influences are, that he's, the, the stories that he's, he's name-checking.
0: I um, mean, I, I suppose Ace was kind of... She's laid the foundation for the modern companion in a way. Um, so, and Rose obviously then sort of properly established that with the new series, but um, you can sort of see how... Um, how that sort of era informed um Russ's writing of Rose, and how you know he brought the companion to the forefront um and kind of her background and her her perspective
1: <clears throat> yeah, definitely um so we were so yeah they they escape into TARDIS um and land on tower bridge is it mm-hmm. and then um this the way that they, they kind of really up the, the stakes here, don't they? Because the, uh, in the book there are kind of those um, like statue um, people who um, performers who kind of you know living statue type things, aren't they? Who turn out to be autons, yeah. um, who are chasing them, and they're all kind of different ones. Uh, so it's just a bit more jeopardy while before they arrive in the nesting layer they're getting chased by these things and they think they're escaping from them, but actually they've been herded towards the entrance. Uh, so again, that was, it was good that they, they did that. Likewise, when you get the scenes of, um, Clive and Jackie and, mm-hmm. um, Mickey's band, who I wouldn't say the way they really call themselves bad wolf.
2: Yeah. Um, the, yeah
1: the kind of the series one kind of repeated, um, reference, isn't it? Um, yeah. they don't just get, um, menaced by shop window dummies as they do in the episode. There's all kinds of things, like the giant plastic dog out of a shop mm-hmm. and kind of Lego people and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um,
0: so. The thing I really like about how he does this climax um, is you kind of – he really expands on it, on the scale of it, because you're not just following, say, Jackie, and then you get a little little bit of Clive at some point. You have all these different groups, some of which are, you're familiar with and some of which you're not. So, um, you know, you have um, – so you have the uh, – um, the living statues on Westminster Bridge and the, the London Eye um, and there's loads of people trapped on the London Eye which obviously is like the epicentre of everything going on yeah. and then you obviously go to Jackie and there's this lovely kind of bits from her perspective as well um, and um, and then you have Clive and his family and then uh, the three bandmates um, and then you also intercut with... Um, some other characters as well um like very briefly so you have the uh uh, mr hendrick um who's you know he's being very like after a shop's been blown up he's going to sort of use that not to come he's It it says something like, um, because an employee was responsible, they think an employee was responsible. It means that they can sort of lump them all under one umbrella and say that they can't compensate them. Um, and then he said he he was looking into like ways to even sue his employees, um, yeah. So you, you don't feel that bad when him and his a, uh, his a uh, very wealthy family, you know, meet an unpleasant end. But it is very like graphic the way it's written.
1: It is, um, yeah, like like the way I was saying, what kind of Mickey's eyeball and um, falling out. This this would mm-hmm. have been even more kind of um, unlikely to be shown on the screen because they say he arrives with his wife and his boyfriend.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, his wife gets beheaded and the boyfriend gets drilled through the stomach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, yeah, he, he kind of, uh, in his brief scene, he's, um, yeah, kind of really suffers, doesn't he? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, and same goes for uh, Rose's ex-boyfriend as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, so we find out that he, um, he's he got another girlfriend that he's just been um, using for kind of her money and a flat and things yep. like that. Um, and he's just in the process of leaving her and stealing loads of stuff uh, when he gets killed by Autons as well. Yeah, yeah
0: so it's a, a bit of kind of, poetic justice in there but um yeah like uh, it's just quite a clever way of um expanding on on the whole it, it raises the stakes even though these aren't very nice people that are getting killed you sort of know that the other characters especially the new ones um like mickey's bandmates like you don't know what's going to happen to them because obviously there's no kind of pre-established uh narrative there that you're familiar with um
1: yeah, those are the ones you're worried for, aren't you? Because if, mm-hmm. if they killed them off, you know they're not in any future stories. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it would have been, um, uh, yeah, I actually did think that, that maybe one of them would die for that reason. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm quite pleased that they did all survive.
0: I mean, I, I, I think it, it, it kind of, it's, it's really lovely that he gave them, a whole sort of through line in the story um, because they are completely new characters, but they they have this kind of thing going on um, where like two of the characters, I think it's Patrice and Mook uh, sort of get together in the end. And it's nice even seeing that little arc going on. Um, And it's just those little details which really enrich the story. Um, Oh, and there's, there's one particular cutaway that they do. Okay. Which is very cruel, but was actually quite funny as well. Um, the uh, Donna one, yeah, where uh, you do, it kind of tricks you because you're like, "Oh, who's are we with now?" and then it just says, "And Donna slept through the whole day." Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> um, that was
1: the um, the kind of joke when they introduced her, wasn't it? The in the runaway <laughs> bride that. Um, at this point there'd been multiple invasions
2: yeah. um,
1: there'd been the, the Autons the Slothene thing had happened Christmas invasion
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, the Cybermen and everything and she's like oh, I was scuba diving or it was, was hungover yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I like that, I wondered then after that point whether Martha might get a cameo her yeah
2: I was hoping
0: that Like, I suppose he didn't want to overdo it but it would have been nice to see what every kind of a rusty Davies, and companion,
1: was doing yeah. at that moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like you say, it's a great idea to think about the people on the London Eye
0: because
1: mm-hmm. um, I, I didn't watch the episode and think about that. But yeah, of course, like it's a massive tourist thing. It kind of runs all yeah. the time, doesn't it? Um, and you get uh, you get scenes. Well, does, it just describes him as the posh little boy, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
1: who just has a really rough time throughout the whole the yeah. scene that he's in. He gets kind of knocked flying by an auton. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he gets on the London Eye. Um, and uh,
0: just has say, a really bad evening. <laughs> yeah, and
1: then, um, which, which um, again, you don't get in the episode, but you get in this, is the London Eye actually collapses mm. with the defeat of the Nestines, Um and their pod goes absolutely flying as well.
2: Yeah.
1: And it says, like, they, they get a few broken bones and things. Yeah. And you think, God, the poor kid, like, he doesn't even get a name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I suppose it, it just kind of... Um, like, you, you often get with uh, with episodes where there's, you know, there aren't really many characters. Like, when it's focused on the heroes trying to save the day and, like, a city's getting devastated by an invasion, they have to, you know, cut away to some people being affected by it. Um, like, you know, in sort of um Army of Ghosts Doomsday, you have this, like, you know, the classic family kind of huddled together sort yeah. of thing going on. So it's nice that he kind of... Out of the box, a bit for that rather than the classic kind of mother with her baby kind of thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, so, the um, sorry, I'm jump, jumping around a little bit, but yeah, so the but in the Nestine's layer, um, you get there's an extra scene which again was originally in the first draft, according to the mm-hmm. complete history, where Rose finds Mickey, but it's another duplicate but it's yeah. better quality one this time. And she says, oh, don't worry, the doctor's got this anti-plastic. Mm-hmm. And then Mickey reveals that the doctor's got the anti-plastic. So that's when the auton searches him and uh, and finds a little kind of file in his pocket. Um, but that's, so that's reinstated from an early draft as well.
0: Yeah, it's a nice addition, especially as someone who wasn't familiar with that. Um, it kind of surprised me as well yeah. because I wasn't expecting it.
1: Yeah, it's um, because you, you know from the episode that they, they just sort of reunited then.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then, yeah, the real Mickey's released. And um, she knows it's him that time because she says he kind of smells like Mickey and he's, he's yeah. really terrified and everything. He
0: smells of fear, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and then, uh, yeah, I wonder it was another kind of little um, kind of nod to the production is when Rose is swinging on the chain... Um, the Doctor kind of looks up and then he, he does the move at the autumn that's holding him from behind. He, he flips it over
2: mm-hmm.
1: into the, the kind of nesting pit thing.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and she thinks, that was a bit easy. Was he waiting for me to do something? Yeah. Because uh, it does look a bit like that in the episode. That, um, it does. Think, why didn't he do that before? So it's nice that there was a reason that potentially, that is the reason why he did it. Because I think what's different about this book compared to the other target novelizations that came out with it um, there's no point when you're in the doctor's head in this one, is there?
0: No, um, yeah, because that, yeah, definitely. Because um, the interesting thing, I mean, spoilers for the uh, the day of the Doctor novelisation, yeah. that's almost exclusively from the Doctor's perspective. Yeah, um, and um, which is because I I always thought that you want to be quite hesitant of doing that because the Doctor is such a, you know, he knows so much and there's so much more going on in his head than he lets on that that would be quite difficult. And I think um, that works really well for that story because the Doctor is the character in that story. Um, But for this particular one where it's so reliant on Rose's perspective, it is nice because it kind of enhances the mystery more. yeah um, And I think it would have kind of reduce that effect a little bit if you had gone into his perspective
1: definitely yeah i think um i think yeah the, the day of Doctors quite unique in that um well it's, it's unique and the christmas invasion they do it because you've got the two doctors and there's a lot of kind of humor and, and interest mm. in seeing one doctor from the other's perspective yeah um each time uh and the christmas invasion they only really do it i mean the doctor's not in that one a great deal no It's kind of right at the end When After he's got his uh, Tentacost doctor costume And everything like that mm-hmm. You see a little bit um, But yeah This one Does, does nothing from his perspective but I think it works really really well
0: Yeah
1: Because um, it's Rose's story And Rose's introduction
0: mm-hmm. And it's very much about Introducing the doctor As the mysterious You're not quite sure What to make of him Kind mm-hmm. of uh, Figure yeah, oh, definitely. I've, I've just re- realised there's, there's another really interesting cutaway. I um, it's kind of after you know the danger's passed um, and the autumns have sort of just collapsed and sort of they're not a threat anymore. And um, you go into Clive's wife's perspective.
2: Yeah,
0: and, and it's I don't like I don't know if this is a reference to like another story like a comic or something because or whether it's just like a funny little setup that hasn't been paid off yet but it's like something like she blamed the doctor for Clive's death and she swore her revenge yeah You're like, oh, that's a bit ominous <laughs> she said,
1: yeah she'll she'll take up kind of Clive's mission of finding him and, she, and then she'll kill him off I get something yeah. like that yeah I couldn't find anything where that's been picked up on so I guess it's just kind of leaving it wide open
0: she's the big bad but, of series 11
1: yeah <laughs> that, that would be that would be quite the twist wouldn't it yeah <laughs> um, yeah but I guess it's um, it's it's like I think something that Stephen Moffat likes to do is leave things open for a so big finish as well doesn't he mm-hmm. so I guess kind of big finish or, or kind of just like um, your fan writers anything like that any any yeah. future spin off novels um, it would be quite a tantalising thing to uh, to bring back but yeah um, Interesting for the thirteenth doctor, if it if it is. As
0: yeah. Well. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's the frog story. It can all it can all come from the Rise novelization. It's all set up. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's it. Um, yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that bit, but yeah, I thought that was a that was a nice touch. Um, yeah, it leaves it leaves it wide open, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it was also kind of, I, I think it was almost played for humour as well because it's so out of left field. Yeah. I was mean, it's just suddenly his sparring revenge thing for his mum. Yeah, because um, she'd
1: been the the total voice of normality in Clive's life, hadn't she? She was yeah. like the sane, rational one who was just like, she she humoured him with his obsession with the doctor, but, you know, she kind of just got on with the, the day-to-day stuff of yeah. uh, looking after the family and everything.
0: And I suppose, like, I mean, it it was really nice that even though she was such a minor character, she appeared for like a second. They even expanded like how she met Clive and their relationship a bit more. But I think in in another way, like the purpose of that scene is also to kind of show that the Doctor does cause a lot of... Well, not that he caused it, but he brings, you know, the whole um, speech Clive makes about his constant companion being death and sort of you see that proved here sort of by seeing the perspective of someone who's lost someone because of this world, this alien world. Yeah. um, It's quite an interesting perspective to add in there because, you know, you could probably do a whole like spin-off series about bystanders who are affected just, you know, the extras, the periphery, um, and seeing, you know, how their lives are turned upside down just by being, you know, part of this larger story.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's good that it uh, it touches on that as well. Um, So we also get a scene, which isn't in the TV episode, um, when the TARDIS dematerialises from Under the London Eye to take Mm -hmm. Rose and Mickey home. Uh, We get a scene in the TARDIS with the three characters. And we've got a reading for that now with Simon Ibbison from the brilliant Daddy Doctor Daughter blog where simon watches doctor who with his daughter uh, and they blog about that so we'll uh,
3: listen to that now rose held up her mobile and said to the doctor best reception ever she sounded louder than she does in real life and for my mother that's saying something did you give my signal a boost the tardis might have helped said the doctor with a smile he moved around the central console attaching one switch to another with the sort of elastic rope you'd use on a roof rack The glass columns sighed up and down above their heads, the engine noise reduced to a slow groan, the room tilting and swaying, but gently this time. Rose said, Could I phone Mars from here? Yeah, tell him I want my boots back. Why? What happened to your boots? I left them there, obviously. Even when joking he was still so rude. Mickey interrupted. How do we get out of here? He was sitting on the floor, on the opposite side of the console to the doctor, determined to stay as far away from him as possible. He'd initially retreated down one of the gantries, so scared of the chamber's size that he'd tried to hide in the shadow of an internal doorway. But then he'd hear a roar from the depths of the TARDIS. That'll be the dragon, said the doctor, and Mickey had scarped back to the centre. Now he huddled into himself, miserable, smeared with grease and grime. As far as he knew, the police box was still inside the underground lair. He could accept that the interior was calmer somehow, safer and sort of detached, but he had no concept of the box having moved. Rose supposed she could explain it to him, but later maybe. The Doctor was more important right now. Time with him was precious. He could vanish on a whim. So what are we now, she said to the Doctor. I mean, like this, right now. What are we doing? Are we in flight? Sort of, yeah. But in flight where? Like I said, one second away. But it's taking more than a second, Rose said. So while we're in flight, we're not flying like a plane, so where are we? Mickey said, what the hell are you on about? But the doctor had a wolfish gleam in his eye, a challenge. He strode down the entryway, those big boots making the metal clatter and clang to reach the wooden doors. He said, do you really want to see? Rose said, yeah, and smiled, returning the challenge. He opened the left-hand door. She looked at the view and took a good few seconds to accept it, to consider the angle and the depth and the likelihood and the sheer oh my god sight of it. And she wanted to yell and run away and hide, but then she did what she was dying to do and she went to stand at the doctor's side. They were in flight above the earth. She stood on the edge of the rickety wooden box and below there was the entire planet. She held the whole of the world within her sight. It's a trick. That's not real, said Mickey, but she didn't even look round. She heard a clang of metal. Mickey sitting back down and burying his head, she guessed, but she stayed in the doorway looking out at the universe. She wondered, with the door open to space, how can we breathe? But in the same moment she thought, well, we can, so therefore it's possible. Simple as that. She could trust herself to work things out, and she smiled, thinking of everyone who'd ever doubted her, now so tiny, trapped by gravity far below while she sailed on high. She looked down at Great Britain, the lights of London, a yellow sprawl in the dark of night. Down there, she supposed, there must be fires and alarms and tragedies, but it seemed mercilessly peaceful from above. She looked to her left, the clouds of the Atlantic curling towards a bright fringe of sunlight, the long day ending beyond the curve. Then she looked up and out at the infinite stars. She had imagined space as a simple black, but it was paler and richer and so much more complex, infused with extraordinary maroons, reefs of light blue, glints of yellow on vast clouds of the deepest green. They stood there together, Rose and the Doctor in an intimate silence. Then she looked at the northeast curve of the horizon below, some plains of Russia, focusing on particular dips of landscape. She waited, and then, as she knew she would, she saw them change under the planet's slow revolve. I can feel it, she said. The turn of the earth. He smiled. They stayed there for a while. Then she stepped back, and the doctor closed the door. It was time to go home.
1: Thank you very much to Simon for the reading there. Have you had a chance to read any of his blog?
0: Yeah, I read the first two um, for, well, I, th- I think I read his ones for Rose and, um, the end of the world. and it, It's pretty sweet. Um, it's lovely. It's really nice seeing, um, seeing someone experience it for the first time, especially a younger, a child sort of seeing it through their eyes. Um, cause I think he said that she watched the pilot first and that was the first episode she watched. Yeah. And then, um, he decided to sort of take her through the new series. Um, but yeah, it, and seeing the sort of drawing she's done, it, it just it just shows the charm of this show so much and how it appeals to so many people of all different ages.
1: Definitely, yeah, it's, it's a blog I recommend, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Um, there is um, an older episode of this podcast as well where I speak to Simon about the blog, uh, so I'll put a link to that one. Uh, so then, that's the, uh, we, the kind of very end of the book. Uh, it's the last scene where the doctor is um, drops them off. Mickey kind of tears mm-hmm. out of the TARDIS, terrified, um, and it's all from Rosie's point of view. But it's the the temptation of, of traveling with the doctor when he when he invites her,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that's good. Cause you get much more into Rosie's head about the reasons why she wants to, but she doesn't. And then, actually um, the TARDIS takes off. Um, I don't know if you've read any of the, the stories that came out in 2013, but they're getting a re-release later this year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's going to be is it 13 stories for 13 doctors?
0: Oh, I have got that book actually. I've read the first few stories. I haven't read all of them yet.
1: Yeah, the ninth um, Doctor one is called The Beast of Babylon. Um, it's by mm-hmm. Charlie Higson, who wrote the um, like the Young Bond novels, and he's uh, probably best known for being in the Fast Show. Um, mm-hmm. Shows to like. Uh, so yeah, he's he's written a ninth Doctor story, which is set between the Doctor taking off and reappearing and telling Rose it's also a time machine.
0: Oh, that's, that's really clever, because <laughs> obviously you kind of just assume that it ha- he just changes his mind while he's sort of flying off.
1: Yeah, yeah. that he just so, said, oh, um, I did tell her it's a time machine and pops back. But there's this yeah. whole story where um, he goes to an alien planet and then he sort of gets a temporary companion and takes her to ancient Babylon and then mm-hmm. it's the the whole reason why he decides to go back to try again to um to, to, to get Rose to come along. Uh, so yeah it's interesting. That's coming. that's been re released with a new story for the thirteenth Doctor, um, just like a few months after this novelization as well. So they um, they tie in there. Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I, I really do like that about the expanded material. How and even you know when you think about sort of fan work as well, like the untold adventures. It's it's the way you can use um, use these stories to kind of enrich the televised series even more. Um, and yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know about that.
1: Yeah, it's it's really. I think it's the only one like that that sort of set these sets in the middle of an existing adventure.
2: That's
1: mm-hmm. what um, the problem is with the Ninth Doctor, if you you, you ask, like, limit, limited like that. Um, yeah. Because um, some of the stories kind of directly follow on and that kind of thing, so um, there probably aren't that many gaps, particularly if you want to do a story with the Doctor on his own. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's probably quite, uh, you have to look for the little gaps where you can find them.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, there's even a bit um, in the novelisation where, I think he cuts his cheek on Jackie's coffee table, and Rose. And then when she sees Rose sees him next, it's healed, and she's like, "Oh, that was fast." And he was like, "Oh, that was a few weeks ago." (laughs) So even then, you Um, know, it's funny to think that uh, throughout the episode of Rose, the Doctor has been off doing other stuff in between.
1: Yeah, Um, because it was quite an
0: interesting idea.
1: I think one of the photos in Clive's shed, she notices he's got the same cut. Um, so it's like that's an adventure he's had yeah in, in between times and then Clive's kind of come back picture probably years ago but for him uh, from Rose's perspective she's you know she's just seen him but then he's gone back and done something different yeah for um, yeah I forgot about that yeah so that's uh, yeah that is uh, that is quite cool yeah within the space of what's like a couple of days for Rose
0: uh,
1: it's probably quite a long time for the Doctor
0: only a Doctor yeah
1: definitely <laughs> So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's the, uh, that's the end. Um, as I say before, it's, um, the, 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 ending is changed in that she's, she parts company with Mickey is slightly less, um, you know, kind of harshly for him. She just says, thank yeah. you in this time in this one. Um, and it, um, so the other slight changes that, uh, it's, it says that she thinks about what the... She heard the Nesting Consciousness use the word Time Lord, mm. um, which you don't really get in the episode. Well, it, I mean, it might be there, but it's very difficult to make out that it's saying anything.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think... I think they kind of, at least as far as I remember, maybe they do, Maybe the Nesting does mention it, but um, I, 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 if I recall correctly, I think they kind of hold off that sort of reveal for the next episode. Yeah. I um, cause
1: the, the tree lady. Um, yeah. I remember her name, yeah. Um, <clears throat> she says time Lord and it's, it's given enough significance the way she says it that, um, mm. yeah, it's like, that's supposed to be the first time that you're hearing it in the new series, I think. Uh, but yeah, absolutely brilliant book. Um, Really enjoyed it, and um, I think as we were saying before, it's great. Like the, the the old Target novels, you can you can get through it in one one sitting as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, and um, it is almost like reliving the episode, but with those added details. Um, and um, I th- like I've been, uh, I, I think it's just so special having Russell's voice in this as well, because. Um, Like, he's aware of certain details, like you said, with the production and, Mm -hmm. you know, the original script that he can sort of weave in there and even things he's just had, like, going on in the back of his mind that he hasn't necessarily put into his writing before. Um, Because I'm reading The Writer's Tale um, at the moment for the first Mm -hmm. time. I I don't know why I put it off reading it for so long um, because it's an absolutely phenomenal book. But um, you can see a lot of his kind of – the way he – because a lot of that book is sort of email exchanges and these very long emails he writes, you see that in this book, you sort of see his kind of sense of humour and his way of writing and describing things. Um, so it's really nice to see with, with all of the target novelisations, you see each writer has a very distinct kind of way of doing things. Like Stephen Moffat is very Stephen Moffat. I'm yeah. um, Very mad and kind of brilliant um, and constantly keeping you on your toes, constantly changing um, and constantly throwing twists at you. Yeah. Um, and then you, you've got the Cornell one as well, which is very kind of poetic and it kind of follows the story pretty much. You know, there's not a whole lot added. No. Um, beyond... What comes from translating, you know, into prose. Um, so there's a really lovely bit. Um, spoilers for the twice upon a time novelization. Um, but there's this lovely, lovely bit he adds uh, with Bill, and you know, kind of filling out what happened to her a bit more. Um, so um, and the cool uh, Jenny Colgan did the uh, Christmas invasion.
1: Yeah.
0: One? Am I saying the name right? I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jenny. Jenny T. Colgan.
0: Yeah, um, and you see her really unique style and voice there as well, because um, she she is a she's a really talented prose writer, and I love all of her um, stories. Um, and then you come back to the Russ one; that is very much. It feels like you know this is written by the person who originally did the screenplay, and he really kind of is is pouring a lot of his kind of background knowledge and also his hindsight as well. You get the impression that. Um, as we were talking about, with like the uh, the other series kind of getting tied into this more, but also kind of because he he must have written this uh, over a decade. No, yeah, over a decade yeah. after um <clears throat> after the episode came out. So it's quite nice seeing him looking back at that and seeing that perspective in there as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, there's a good interview online, which I'll put a link in the show notes, where it's Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis being interviewed by Tom Spilsbury from the Doctor mm. Magazine um, about the process of adapting them. Um, and yeah, Russell T. Davis, I think he says something like, you can't find his Rose script, or you couldn't find it. Yeah. Um, which you think you'd be... Yeah, that's some. That'd be quite a sentimental kind of thing that you would. Uh, you'd at least keep your first one, wouldn't you? It's, uh, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. Um, it's, it's a really good interview about the different approaches and how they find it. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll, um, I'll. Um, it's probably on YouTube. I'll probably I'll embed it onto the into the show notes there as well. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, so if you could um, choose any other novelizations, what which ones would you choose? Uh, maybe for next year.
0: Uh, I mean. I- I'm going to be incredibly biased and say my first choice would be Hellbent. Um, and that's that's not just because of, um, you know, the whole Untold Adventures Cara bias. Yeah. But also, I, I think there's so much you can do in that story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the whole Gallifrey building on the doctors returning there and, you know, kind of the the sort of lore and the the sort of kind of tying that up a bit more because there's even some stuff in the script of Hellbent that doesn't make it into the final cut mm. which I think adds a lot because a lot of people felt that they maybe didn't put enough emphasis on Gallifrey and, um, you know, because it was the return of Gallifrey in a lot of ways even though I think, like, ultimately the story was more focused on resolving Clara's arc and the relationship. But I'd really like to see what could be added in that term. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of other stories, I think um, one of the, like some of the bigger Rusty Davies, like finales as well. But um, so maybe like a uh, Stolen Earth Journey's End um and even some of the more quiet episodes, like I'd, um, I'd love to see like a sort of a Father's Day novelization as well, yeah. um, sort of getting more into Rose, Rose's perspective. <laughs> um, yeah, I
1: was going to say Father's Day actually as well.
0: Yeah, um, and, and Cornell's such a good prose writer as well. Yeah. Well, he's a great screenwriter, but yeah, I, I love his work as well.
1: Yeah, I'm a, a big fan of Paul uh, Cornell's writing. Um, and, and I suppose it'd be weird given that Human Nature and Family Blood is based on his... Yeah, uh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Doctor, yeah, kind of... Um, but it, I think it's different enough that novelization novelisation of that would be great as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think some episodes would definitely work better than others. Like, I've seen a lot of um, calls for a Heaven Sent um, novelisation, but I think so much of that episode is about Rachel Talley's directing yeah. and the visuals and Peter's performance... it it wouldn't be quite the same. I think you need an episode that has a lot of sort of different points of views, lots of maybe different elements that maybe could be explored more. because
1: it it, it all builds to the reveal that one, doesn't it? Even, yeah, it even loses impact. Uh, It's an episode I absolutely love, but even after the first time you've watched it, it it loses impact on repeat viewing. Mm. Um, So yeah, I agree about that one. It's, uh, it's an episode I love, but it it wouldn't be necessarily one I'd want to read. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: but it's really interesting thinking about which ones would work, like, just thinking over again, I, I think I'd, I'd quite like to see, like, the Doctor Falls from, as a novelisation as well. Yeah. I think Stephen even expressed an interest in maybe doing that two-parter, um, and also the Science in the Library two-parter as well, which would be really interesting as a novelisation. Yeah,
1: given, given now that, Rus- that um, River Song's arc is complete... Mm. Getting everything from her point of view, and at what point, you know, that she's got all of her memories of the Doctor because this is like the last time she meets him. Um, oh uh, yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a, a, there's a ton you could do.
1: Yeah, I think um, Matt Gates always, because he kind of cut his teeth with the Doctor Who new adventures.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It'd be
1: interesting to see some of his uh, novelized as well, like you know, the Crimson Horror and that
0: kind of thing. Oh, the the Crimson Horror is the one that would work really well because of the the sort of jumps in perspective and yeah. the because um, obviously you've got the Doctor and Clara's point of view and then the Pat gang and everything that'll be a lot of fun yeah
1: definitely well thank you very much for joining me today Ruth I've really enjoyed discussing this pleasure. book with you um, where can listeners find you on the internet?
0: Uh, I am on Twitter uh, my personal account is at undiscovered ADV for Undiscovered Adventure um, and uh, you can find me on Tumblr at the Lazy Cat Bakes, Who Plays, um, and obviously the Untold Adventures uh, Twitter and Tumblr accounts. Uh, so the Untold Adventures blog on Tumblr, and uh, Twitter is Cloud Oswald, TUA uh, for those accounts as well.
1: Great. I'll put links in the show notes to all of those as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for listening at home. Join me next time. I'll be discussing Infamy of the Zaros with Denise Sutton. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. <laughs>